Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we are speaking with the Illustrators of the Future coordinating judge, Echo Chernick. Welcome, Echo. Thank you for having me on the show, John. All right. So you've been the coordinating judge now for what, five years? Yes, I've been the coordinating judge for five years, and I've been a judge for six years. Yeah, that's um, pretty amazing. And and I got to say, there's been some real, totally cool changes that have happened as a result of you taking the helm of this contest. And uh, so I want to talk to the people about that, like what it is that you changed that made it so cool. And it's really increased the diversity of the illustrator contest to where we've got some of the most amazingly different styles of art that we've ever had before. So first of all, let's just start a little bit about your background itself, because this, that itself is just fantastic. How you went to, from a from a wee pup all the way through school learning, and then how you've, you know, you branched out from there. Um, well, I've always loved art, and I um, went to college for illustration. I went to Pratt Institute and graduated in um, 1995, and I majored in illustration. And my beginning of my career started off actually in role-playing games, which, you know, it, uh, a lot of the work was for uh, White Wolf and Mage and Wraith, so I did a lot of sci-fi stuff already. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, several years after that, I became an advertising illustrator, which is where most of my career has been. I do a lot of package design. I've done work for Miller, Camel, Coors, NASCAR, Trek, Celestial Seasonings, Jose Cuervo, De Kuiper, the post office, the military, Random House, uh, Penguin, a lot of the mainstream things. I've done a wide, I have a, I have a very diverse background in illustration. Um, I also uh, do some editorial illustration and some book cover illustration. Um, so I want to take all of that and I, I use that diverse background and all the different projects I've worked on. And I wanted to take that and um, create something for the winners, which teaches them about not only about being an illustrator, but about all the different paths that they can pursue and all the different back, all the different um, venues and that they're, you know, the choices that they have in front of them, just because mm-hmm. they're, they want to be a book cover illustrator doesn't mean that's all they have to be. They can, you know, they have so, there's so many aspects of illustration. Um, and one of the things I wanted to really bring into the, um, the workshop is the business of illustration. Uh, because uh, when I was in school, they didn't really focus on that too much. And I noticed a lot of illustrators, they might be wonderful artists, but they don't know how to make a living at it. They don't mm-hmm. know how to uh, get paid at it and how to deal with contracts and thus they end up getting taken advantage of and they don't, um, you know, they don't do as well because they don't understand the business of it. And it is a business, um, but it's also, you know, you're also an artist. So there's a, there's a fine balance. So I spend a, a good part of the workshop uh, teaching them, you know, how to be savvy business people and how to, to you know, all the things that took us, thir- us judges 30 years to really to master mm-hmm. um, and, and do that. So... Okay, that's great. So now, so your work as a professional, did, did that while you're going to school at Pratt, was like you finished Pratt and then started, or it was gradually, because I know a lot of, a lot of um, art schools, at least in, in the day, didn't really teach the business side of, of art. Was that something that you were able to get from Pratt Institute? 
I, at Pratt, when I was there, only had a, a like a twenty minute optional seminar on the business of illustration. Um, like I come from a family that were all business majors, so I already you know they they taught me a lot of um, that aspect of mm-hmm. it. Uh, but um, it didn't have enough, I don't think, to really help illustrators launch their career and understand how to really you know get the work and keep the work and and um, promote themselves. It didn't mm-hmm. really do enough of that for my uh, taste. So that's one of the things that I really like. I like to talk about. I like to share. And that's important too, because like you said, if they don't know they're, they're creatives, they're, they're just, they're a lot of times they're very trusting, maybe introverted. Mm -hmm. And so they don't look at necessarily the, the bad of people or that people are in, will come out and just try to get the best of them, you know, taking advantage of them. And, and that's, they don't have to get those kind of hard knocks to learn. Yeah, and as an artist, you're putting your your work out there, and you enjoy doing the work. Um, so, you know, I think artists have a lot of times feel guilty getting paid for their work because you know they also enjoy it and it's part of them. So they have a low self worth about it. So it's important to uh, you know to to know that they deserve to get paid for mm-hmm. it, and they deserve you know. But there's there's different. As I was explaining to the students in the in the workshop, there's different ways to to get you know to get compensated for your work, and there's there's it's 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 a it's a process that you have to learn over time uh, right. to to um, to really you know. But but your work in, as a professional artist is worth money, and you need to uh, to to figure out how to do that. Good. Now, I've talked to different artists in the podcast over the last three years, and about this subject of getting paid and how to work out how much to charge something. And, you know, I've had, you know, you got minimum wage, you've got different values. And there's also like, whatever you sell something for now, you have, next time you sell something has to be more. Otherwise they'll, they'll, you'll be taken advantage of. Like if you charge like X amount today for a piece, and then uh, tomorrow you charge X minus one. So it's less then that's going to be not good for you in terms of somebody tracking you want to pay for yourself. I'll, I'll give you this for it when you want to be able to have more charge for it. Do you have any an opinion on that? Well, what I teach them and what I talk to them about and the way that I've managed my careers, it's not quite as cut and dry as that. There are um, One of the things I recommend all the students get is the Graphic Artists Guild book for pricing and ethical guidelines um, because it, it lays out what, the range of what you should be getting paid uh, per project mm-hmm. um, and, you know, for each one. But there's different elements in there as well. There's how uh, how big is the demographic? Is How big is the company? Are we talking about you doing work for Pepsi or are you doing work for um, Random House for a book cover or are you doing work for Joe Author for a book cover? Because they're all going to have different budgets, but you still have to do the same level of awesome work. Pepsi will have a larger budget because they're going to be marketing to a much larger audience and a much larger demographic. Uh, the smaller the smaller companies won't have as large of a budget, but you so you have what I suggest to them to do, and what I do is figuring out um, a base cost for illustration. How much do you need to survive and to run your studio? Like figure out as a base cost of like how much I need to earn X amount, and then I balance all of my projects based on that base amount, because not every project is going to have the same budget. I might have in one month a big project from Pepsi, which will pay a great amount, which allows me to do work for Joe Author, who's not going to pay as much. Now, why would I want to work for Joe Author, um, who doesn't have the same budget? Because I'm an artist, and artists are uh, driven by doing what they love and 
uh, creating, you know, creating art and we enjoy it, but we still, you know, but you still need to make a living. So by, by figuring out the base amount, you can balance those two clients in order to pay your bills. And there's other ways to, um, there's other reasons you might want to work for authors or smaller companies because, um, some of the smaller projects might be something you're interested in, and you know that that's going to be it's going to turn out great. You know it's going to turn out great, and then you can use it in your portfolio. And once you use it in your portfolio, you can get other projects that will pay more. Um, so with artists, it's not always a set all about the money. Uh-huh. You have to balance the passion and the money. Um, then you have licensing and copyrights as well. Um, you have the base amount that you paid for an illustration. And then you own the rights to it. Say I did a book cover, and the 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 Joe author wants you know wants to pay me a thousand dollars to use the book cover, and uh, but I still own the copyrights to the book cover, which means he publishes uh, one you know he has North American rights for one year or whatever, and publishes all of his promotional me- media and everything. But later on, if I wanted to take that book cover five or 10 years down the line and make notebooks out of it or sandals out of it or T-shirts out of it, that's more income that I as an artist can bring in. Um, when it comes to – I just uh, – I talked to the students about copyrights. You can also sell the copyrights to it, which means, you know, Joe Artists would pay more money to be able to do – to own the artwork and use it forever and ever mm-hmm. um, as uh, – you know, as opposed to uh, me being able to use it. But see, that's one of the things you have to balance out when you figure out your, you know, what you're going to charge for something. It's, it's, it's complicated, but the, the book, uh, the book really helps. And we always try to be there. Um, the judges always try to, at least I try to always be available. I've had ex winners, past winners come up to me or email me and ask me about help bidding on a job. They'll, they'll write to mm-hmm. me and they'll say, I just got this big job. I'm really excited. I don't know what to bid help. And it's in my best interest to help them because if they bid too low, it hurts the industry. They, they need to bid within the realm of what they should be getting paid. Um, so that, you know, the industry keeps paying the right amount mm-hmm. for everybody else out there. It helps set that standard that's in that book. So, Okay, that's great. So now, so you do paint, so say like you do a, uh, a painting. So how many different incarnations of revenue stream will a painting generate for you? Uh, it depends. It's different every time and it's different for every artist. But options are you have... You've done a painting, and now so now you have the original painting. You can sell the original painting. You can sell prints of the original painting. You can sell licensing of the painting as well, so that it can be used on a book cover. Um, that means I were to, you know, basically sell the licensing or be commissioned to do the painting for one-time use or one-year use North America. You know, once that's mm-hmm. done, I can then sell it again later on. I can uh, I can then license it to other companies that contact myself or my licensing agent and say, hey, we want to put this painting on a shower curtain. And so um, now they can buy the rights to use that on like, you know, put it on a shower curtain or deck chairs or uh, sandals or notebooks or statues or everything. So it can be licensed for that. Um, NFTs, of course, are a a can of worms right now. Um, But my personal opinion on NFTs is that they'll settle down. There's a there's abusers out there and everything, but I'm um, but I'm working with a company that I feel very confident with. I'm working with Artify um, and a lot of the other artists, uh, Larry Elmore and Sorello, and uh, for Frank Frazetta's um, estate, are working with um, with them as well uh, for the uh, creation of NFTs that are specialized in fantasy artists for people that like to collect 
them like a collect. They're building like a collector's market, and that mm-hmm. is a new and burgeoning uh, collector's market. That is also a a version of revenue. Yeah, and Rob um, Pryor's done seven of them. He did seven of them last year. Yeah, yeah. And uh, why are they so much more lucrative? Um. They're in a growing phase right now. So I don't think that it's that they're more lucrative. They're just, all right. So there's there's all those stories, of course, of people that have made, you know, bazillions off of them and made millions off of them. And and that, as far as I understand it, and as far as I can see, also crosses over into the fine art market where people, you know, buy bananas taped to walls for millions and, and things like that. That's, that level can cross over to fine art collection, which has more to do with uh, wealthy people investing in art and collecting things. And, you know, it's, it's a different realm. There's a nice Netflix documentary on that, on the art collecting thing. And I think the higher echelon of NFTs is trying to cross over into that mm-hmm. um, from the level that I'm comfortable at. And I see with what we're doing with Artify is that um, they're creating reasonable collectible cards for a reasonable rate to, you know, to, and they're, and they're, they're special. And then, because they're, they they create them so that they're different. They're not just the art. They're not just like a, a JPEG of the art, like some people say. They're they're animated and they're they're really neat looking. And and then when they people resell them, they uh, the artist gets a piece of that, which is different too. Mm-hmm. That's a different concept. Normally, if you sold a painting to a uh, to a collector you, and they resell it, you don't get a piece of that. Right. So it's it's kind of a unique concept, you know. And it it's um. You know, people make fun of it because there's people. There are people that have abused the system, and there are people selling knockoffs, and it's it's in this yeah. tumultuous phase. But I I think there is a core for artists that can be a, a good revenue stream. It just has to you know has to settle down a little <laughs> bit. So, and I think I personally think uh, people laugh at collecting you know NFTs, but honestly, people are living in smaller houses, they're living in tiny homes, they're living in apartments, and I have a VR headset I'm on a lot, and I think that the world of VR is going to become more and more popular. I have a VR gallery uh, uh, that's on there. It's uh, framevr.io/echoturnic, where you can go in and see my whole VR gallery and everything. And I think as more that becomes more prominent. Like um, Ready Player One, people, mm-hmm. you know, people will go in and see people's art collection in their VR world. No, I just put on my, the cool. headset and had the two little hand yeah. gizmos there, and I was doing a tour of your gallery. It was so cool, and then I could, I could zoom in on it and walk around and walk over and see the different uh, walls and all the panels with your art on it. That was just it's, that was amazing. I do an occasional free seminar just for artists to help them learn how to set it up. In that, I like that particular environment because it's free for artists um you can have up to 15 people in there you can put the webcam up and you know and have um, demonstrations uh there's a lot of pluses that make it a really good gallery space and then you could also program all of the art so that when you click on it you can go right to the store and buy it which is really nice mm-hmm. and um you could also click on it and have a zoom view so it's flat and you can you know it's not warped or anything but it's a it's a really neat immersive gallery experience no that's i was surprised i came in there and into your you're talking to everybody, and then one by one they come up and they put this headset. I said, "What are they doing? Is that?" And then uh, at the end, afterwards, you said, "You want to try it?" And I said, "Of course." You know, <laughs> but that's just that's amazing that that's it's a future trend that's, that was predicted in science fiction. Like I said, Ready Player One. That, but it's it's totally that that world. You become immersed in you're in there. 
Yeah. Remember the movie Johnny Mnemonic when he's got the headset on and mm-hmm. he's doing all the programming with his hands and everything in the gloves. And yeah, it's that's we're, we're getting there. Yeah. Um, but if, it's got a lot of practical uses too for, like I said, setting up the gallery space and you can make art in it. They're still, they're learning to do the art programs and it, it's it definitely has pluses. So I'm going to be, uh, I offer up every once in a while to to teach people how to set up the gallery space. It's pretty easy. Oh, that's good. So now you do so much different kind of work. How did the progression go? Like you graduate from Pratt and you can, was it mostly illustration that you were, that you launched with or was it fine art or what was it you launched with? I knew that I wanted to be an illustrator. I went to school to be an illustrator. And when I set my mind to something, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. So I knew I wanted to go to the best art school. So I researched them all and then I went to Pratt. And then um, I liked that they had a, they taught you to work in different styles and they really set, Pratt sets a really good, um, like foundations. You learn in all different mediums. You learn in 3D, you learn to draw. And so your style, you know, develops over time, but you Mm -hmm. have a strong, strong foundation, which is what I liked about it. Junior year, I knew I wanted to graduate and I wanted to illustrate. And that's what I wanted to do, period. Um, but I knew I probably couldn't jump right into like full advertising illustration because I didn't really have the portfolio for it. And, you know, I was right out of school and I was afraid of having to get a job and then losing the ability and having to do it at night and eventually it, it fading off. So I decided to dedicate my entire senior year of school to nothing but black and white artwork because back then in the nineties, um, all the role-playing games had black and white interior illustrations and I was playing role-playing games. So I knew I could get a job doing it. I knew I could do as, as good as these. And so I learned all these different formats of black and white art until I got a style. And then by junior year, I um, was approached by White Wolf to do some, my first 14 illustrations. And I was super excited. And uh, of course the game industry pays tens of dollars. So it's, you know, it's not the most lucrative. I made hundreds of dollars. You know, I made tens of dollars. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it doesn't pay great, um, but that's okay because it was a good industry to learn in. And that's what that was part of my what I wanted to do. I wanted to figure if I screw it up in this industry and I, you know, get and miss deadlines, this is the one to do it. And before I start hitting the advertising work. And I right. so I did that for a while. And then I got approached by Trek Bicycles uh, to do a Art Nouveau poster. Um, because I was one of two Art Nouveau illustrators that was alive, and um, the other one was too busy, and so they called me, and everybody else that did Art Nouveau at the time was dead, so they, they didn't answer their phones either. So, uh, <laughs> so I um, and I was really excited and really nervous, um, but I did my first big Art Nouveau one, and then I got more and more work from there, um, and then once I was established doing uh, advertising work, I wanted to go back into game work because I. I'm still a gamer. I'm still kind of a geek. Mm-hmm. So I contacted the uh, Shadowrun, which is my favorite um, game. And I said, I want to do work for you, even though my portfolio doesn't look anything like what you do. I really can do that. And the art director was super excited. And I'd done 14 covers and a tarot deck and a bunch of interiors and I know all kinds of things for them because I enjoy that. So I think, right. um, and I tell the students this, when you're an artist, uh, making money is important and good, but balancing out your your creative head is equally as important. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I showed, I tell them how I balance the advertising work with the role playing work so that it, it makes a, a financial balance that I can support right. my family on. So, and then I just recently opened my gallery in Fairhaven, Washington, and then I just expanded two weeks ago into a gift shop. So, <laughs> amazing. Now, when I see you at a convention and you're selling your paintings, is that the last leg of their life? Uh, no. Absolutely not. I'm okay to clarify that as as a revenue stream. So like you Oh, as a revenue stream? Yeah. Oh, I still sell prints of them. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, so no, yeah, even when I sell the original, I still sell prints of them. And you still keep the copyrights to it, even when somebody else buys the original, so that I can still continue to license it or uh, sell the copyrights to it. Because the printing rights is different than the original. Okay. So um, people can buy uh, the original and buy the copyrights, but again, it's in what you negotiate. Okay. So, I mean, I've had people come up and say, hey, I want to have a painting commissioned of my wife, um, nude, but I don't want to have it, you know, it published. I don't want prints. I don't want anyone else to see it. And that, that just comes into they're buying the, the copyrights and they're buying everything, which means they you pay more for the painting plus the copyrights. Right. And then, uh, and then they get everything and uh, I don't, you know, I don't share it. Right. It comes down to negotiation and contracts. Okay. So now now you do painting or do you also do Photoshop or is it both? I do both. I do both. I do my I shoot my own reference. People ask me this a lot. I shoot reference. Uh, sometimes I buy reference, you know, so, but a lot of times I shoot reference. So you see me taking pictures of all kinds yeah. of things. Um I shoot reference of people, I shoot reference of doors, I shoot reference of you know, of everything. Um that are there were around, you know, I pretty photos. I was at the last Illustrators of the Future. I was taking pictures of all the flowers because then I can use those in the pieces later on. But uh, I will work with professional models. I'll work with amateur models. Um, uh, sometimes I do stock. You know, stock is perfectly legitimate mm-hmm. as long as you purchase it, and that's fine too, um, and make it your, your own. Uh, and then um, I do the drawing from there. And then a lot of times I work digitally because I do so much advertising work. It uh, uh, it makes sense because sometimes I have to take a poster. Like, for instance, I did a poster for um, Ballet West, and they needed it to be 18 by 24. But they also needed it to be 12 by 56, which is very, very tall and thin, uh, to be on the outside of the opera house. And then they needed it to be a billboard, which is uh, very, very horizontal. So working digital makes the most sense for that because I can layer everything in order to change it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, one of the things I talk to the winners about is anticipating their clients' needs. Uh, are they going to need to have it in all these different formats? And in that case, you have to illustrate it uh, in such a manner that you can do it right. um, different ways, which makes it hard if it's a, a physical painting because then it's it's set to one size. But I also do physical oil paintings. I uh, was a traditionally trained oil painter in college. I love doing oil paintings. I was um, hired to do some. Uh, many years ago, and I forgot how much I loved it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I like painting women and painting nudes and neoclassical pieces. And so now I'm doing that and illustration. And I started off my career doing black and white illustration totally. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn, remember, I circle back to where I had to learn all the different forms of black and white. And black and white's a, a different beast. You um, you can't really cheat with black and white. Like with color, you can just add some colors and cheat a little more. Black and white, you're, yeah. you're you know, you have to, you have to actually illustrate well with that so um black and white photography is also it's it's a real skill to do it successfully so with my patreon i'm actually illustrating maya by richard adams and a lot of the book plates are in black and white because i love black and white and it got black and white and gold i have some color plates in there too and then i'm doing all of the chapter heads and pen and ink work because i want to Mm -hmm. (laughs) so so now when you have um, an oil painting and you scan how do you actually scan and what's 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 the technique to get the best results of a scan, and, and what resolution do you want to scan to? Now I take really, really high-res photographs of okay. it. Yeah, and that's the, that's the best way. And then we do a lot of work in the post-production, too, to make to make sure there's a whole scale. Lazarus actually does a lot of my photographs of my paintings because he has a separate space set up with proper controlled lighting sure. um, to, to do all that. So. 
So you don't scan it. It's an actual photo is what you guys do. That's what I do. Yeah, that's what I do. I mean, you can scan it, but I, I prefer the photo. And then really? I, you know, and then a lot of times I do my underpaintings actually digitally. So I'll, um, I'll go in and I'll work on both so that it, it's smooth. Uh, from, that's why my, my, my prints sometimes look different than the originals. Because I'll work from the under, across between the underpainting and the original to get the, the best print. Right. So. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so now you can go back any of the several volumes now of Writers of the Future, and there's so many different styles of art. You know, we've got En Lee, who won a few years ago with um, Vietnam. That painting, that artwork is so different than we had Mason Matak from Iran, who's very obviously Middle Eastern art. We had Max Caven from Turkey. We've got the UK, we've got South Africa, we've got all these different people winning, and it's not like, here's your DC or that type of art, this is what we've got going here, although you do have some that looks like DC as well, mm-hmm. but what, what, what does you go to, like, what are you looking for that makes it possible for such a variety <laughs> of, of artists to win? So as the coordinating judge, all of the pieces come to me first. Mm-hmm. And then I have to look at all of them and I have to sort out which ones are going to go to the judges. And I, I pick the top eight um, and then I those go over to the judges and then the judges pick the top three. So even if I pick it, it doesn't mean it's going to get in. It means it goes over there. However, I'm the one who chooses the variety to send over to the judges. Um, And this circles back to me being a black and white illustrator. Um, I remember entering contests early on, and I would enter black and white works that were awesome. And I wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't get picked because they weren't color. And I hated that, you know, because I, you know, and even I've had other artists tell me that um, black and white is not as popular as color. They're only looking for a particular style. And I never thought that was very fair. So I wanted, I came into this wanting to make sure that I chose a variety of pieces for the judges to choose that were representative, you know, that as if their style is strong, no matter what style it is in, even if it's black and white and their style is strong, or what, you know, even if it's more of an editorial illustration or Middle Eastern. And there's things that I've passed on that I don't particularly like the style. I can see it's a good style. I can see it's a strong style. It's not my cup of tea, but but I can see that it's it's a good look and it's a good style. And just because I don't like it doesn't mean the other judges won't. Um, so what I, what I want to do is I want to provide a variety for them to choose from because I think that what Hubbard did was to setting this up was trying to launch careers of artists and mm-hmm. not define not I don't think he would have defined like one style. This is the style period. I think, you know, you he know said, I mean he said art is the quality of communication. Yeah. And I, I, I think that um being able to get a bunch of different styles out there lets them determine what the future of illustration is going to be. I mean, you know, the future changes with fads and based on what people like. And if, you know, somebody wins and their style is strongly Middle Eastern influenced and becomes really popular, it doesn't, you know, then the whole thing might shift. They'll influence other people and and the whole look of illustration will shift based on, you know, who influences what. So I want to get a range in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when people enter, I, I really, if when they're in my top eight and they don't get chosen by the judges, I hope. I always hope that they, they enter again the following quarter because they can enter every quarter. Right. Just because they didn't win didn't mean that they didn't make it to that eight. Uh, so just keep entering every quarter because um, you know I keep submitting submitting them, and, and the judges are really good about picking you know about 
keeping that same open-minded diversity right. because we end up with a wide variety of, sure. of pieces. I, I like that the book has a variety of styles and it's not limited. There are some directories out there and contests out there that they're, they're looking for one style and that's it. And and that leads to a, a, a collection that's very cohesive, but it's also very narrow. And mm-hmm. I think that this this needs to be the best of the future. And the best of the future should be a, like a wide variety of awesome, not just a narrow variety of the same thing that I like. So yeah. it should be a, you know, a big variety of, wow, that I've never seen that before. That's so cool. So now that's what I'm going for. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. So the, um, the whole thing of contestants and entering, and I know that an artist can be very introverted, you know, just because they're, I mean, I have the same thing with writers too. You know, you're putting your soul on the line and your image and someone can come up and say, what's that? Or some little diggy comment like, well, don't give up your J job, you know, and then immediately just like, like they just stuck a knife in your eye or something like that. Yeah. You know, so how is this contest different than other things where a person needn't worry about being invalidated or, or being someone other made less of because it wasn't a winning piece of art. So you mean if they like how's this contest help someone to that they don't have to worry about that? Well, yeah. if if they're first of all, if you're a winner, even you know an honorable mention in the contest, there's a lot of entrance. So you know it's good. If you got mm-hmm. through the pro, you know the process, you have all these judges that have decided that your piece is good. So if some somebody comes by and says, you know, don't quit your day job. I mean, what do they know? I mean, Larry Elmore and Sorello and myself, we all said it's good enough to get in. So, you know, yeah. hopefully it helps them feel more confident about their work. Right. You know, there's always going to be people that say things to try to make themselves uh, feel better and make, uh, you know, other... <laughs> Blowing out somebody else's candle doesn't make yours shine brighter, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Okay. So now... We have the finalists, the eight finalists, but we also have honorable mentions. So I think that's something that people need to understand too. I mean, there's a lot of competition for sure, but I've seen it a lot, especially in the writers when I when they publish their novels. They say I was I won honorable mention in Writers of the Future. It's it really has a lot of cachet. Obviously, it's best to be a winner to be published in a book, but to say that you're an honorable mention as well, competition is very much escalating in the illustrator contest with the quality of entries um, each year. Mm-hmm. You know, it just gets better and better and better as it gets more and more popular. Well, yeah, the honorable mentions, I, I, if somebody, I, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for somebody that has a good, that people that have a good style, they have a good sense of, you know, of expressing themselves and illustrating a good, a good grasp on their uh, technique. Um, and just because it doesn't necessarily get through or fit in the book, I mean, they may be awesome, but it, it might not translate well to science fiction covers, you know, for instance, mm-hmm. maybe they have more of an editorial style, um, but that doesn't mean their art's bad. It just means, you know, so we still give them an honorable mention to show them, hey, your stuff is great. So, um, you know, it, 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 there's there's a lot of competition for it. So if somebody gets an honorable mention, it just still gives you some serious yeah. good bragging rights. So what is the significance then? So what you're looking for then, so you get the entries that come in from wherever and you don't have any idea who it is that's submitting, because all you see is the three pieces of art, or three illustrations, I should clarify, and a number. So you have no idea of male, female, nationality, ethnic, nothing, except nope. for the, the, the work. So when a person submits the three illustrations, 
sometimes I've had on social media, people you know, will ask like, well, can I do this or can I do this? Can it be fine art? Can it be this? So what we're specifically looking for is because this is an illustration contest. So how do you distinguish the difference between illustration and other stuff? Well, when it, all right. So if somebody is a really good artist, when, when I'm picking, when I'm picking a, um, when I say it comes down to two pieces and I have to choose between the two pieces to be the winner and to pass on, uh, because it's an illustration contest, I'm always going to pick the one that tells a story. So I tell people, if you want a better chance, send me stuff that tells a story. That's an illust- that's an illustration. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, like you said, this is an illustration contest. But if I don't have, you know, but if sometimes I let people through that are just really good artists. Um, however, I definitely prefer they tell a story. And uh, they're going to be hired to be in the book if they win to tell the story of of, of one of the the, the writer winners. Uh, so they, they actually have, you know, they have mm-hmm. to be an illustrator. So I, I always lean towards ones that tell a story. So I, I strongly encourage people to to send me stories of, even if I don't know what's going on, if I'm like, ooh, this is a story of some sort, I'm not sure what they're doing, but it's it's cool, you know. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll get preference over, over just beautiful pictures of of people or of um, cool, scenes cool fruit. or cool fruit and stuff <laughs> like that. So, um, although I, I have had, you know, concept artists send me really great backgrounds and universes. Bruce, one of our former, one of our winners. Bruce Bernaysi? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Beautiful he does. He's uh, landscapes and amazing landscapes. Now, they, they tell a story. Well, they tell a story in the in the landscapes because he does like these amazing landscapes that you know are a scene for something. Um, but I remember when I was judging his, I had a couple people that were really good at landscapes too. Um, his told the story a little bit more to me than like one of the other ones, but I was hoping the other person would, would enter again because their work was equally good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, but so, so, so just because they're not, Traditional illustrations doesn't mean they're not going to get in. Like his his concept yeah. landscapes, you know, got in. So right, okay. So now on aspiring artist, regardless of um, where they're from, they can enter the contest. So with stories, it's very obvious it's got to be in English. But now, are there any issues with someone if they're if they're from? a non English country submitting to the contest? Is there any issues that? No. Absolutely not. They can submit to the contest. Absolutely. Um, Maliva does a great job pairing the artists with the with their stories and works really hard to help, you know, translate them mm-hmm. so that they understand. Uh, as an artist myself, as an illustrator, I've I've worked, I did a um I did an illustration for a shoe company in China. Now all my art direction notes were always in Chinese. I didn't understand a word they were. They, hmm. And then they, I remember they drew. They were trying to indicate a newspaper, but they drew a scroll, and I, I was confused by that. And they had to explain to me, "Oh, that's supposed to be a newspaper," but they had drawn a scroll. So there's like there's some cultural yeah. things. Sometimes we have to go back and forth on that to make sure that we understand. But that's my job as an art director mm-hmm. to um, make sure that they understand the story and that they're illustrating it appropriately, even if English isn't their first or second language. Um, they you know. They, uh, we just, we, we work with them to, so, so they don't have to speak, you know, they don't have to speak perfect English. So, <laughs> uh, so yes, they can be, we get people from all over the world entering. So at all different ages, we've had people as young as I think 15 to 80 some odd. So yeah, and no, we've had the full gamut because again, there's no, yeah there's no prerequisite. You, have to, you just have to be amateur period. Mm-hmm. And you can start your illustration career when you're 
15 or you can start it when you're 30. And, you know, there's people that don't get to start it until after they've had uh, some life experience or another job or uh, after their kids are grown up, you know, and they um, now they want to pursue their career because mm-hmm. they have more time. So, and that's great. That's perfectly fine. So yeah. do it. Just do it. Work for Grandma Moses. Yeah. So on... I mean, we've got quite a lineage of judges for the contest since it first started with Kelly Fries as the first coordinating judge. Any of our past judges were that for you were like role models or were inspirations? Oh, well, Larry Elmer. Yeah, he's <laughs> the one actually, uh, when I was back in uh, junior high school, I used to sit in the um, the library and look at his books and want to, you know, and look at the Dragonlance novels and the Dragon magazines and stuff. And I, I was like, oh, I want to do that. And I used to draw dragon dragons all over my book covers because they were they were <laughs> you know the ones where you fold them out of the out of the uh, paper the paper bags from grocery stores and you made the book covers back then and I would draw dragons and other people would ask me to draw dragons and you know, can you draw on mine um, and that's all Larry's fault so it's it's all it's all Larry's fault that I'm an illustrator now I tell them that oh, good. so um, and then he's actually the one who uh, caught up with me at Gen Con and asked me to come down as a judge so that was that was pretty kismet there and so um, uh, he said oh I think you'd really like this here can I put your name in for this because uh, you know just you, you're always talking about art and teaching other people and i think it'd be a really good fit for it and so um he's the one who hooked me up with oh, that's this. great <laughs> so yeah, yeah definitely so larry he'll be here in, the, in a day or so yeah so i'm anxious to see him he's he's such a nice person it's amazing you know i know with writers i've talked to him a lot about the imposter syndrome mm-hmm. is that something that exists for artists too yes absolutely <laughs> Hundred million percent. As my husband, artists. Yeah. I've, I've known so many artists that are, you know, that deal with imposter syndrome, and it's well, it's just one of those things you have to just learn to manage and and set aside and not in disregard to a certain degree, and be like, that is nonsensical. Let's uh, let's. Just, it's just. I think it's part of being passionate. You're, you know, you have that doubt which drives you forward mm-hmm. and makes you better because you're always like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I have to, I have to do better. I have to make better. I have to make this better art, and that keeps you kind of going. But it comes with that self doubt. And so I talk to the the still winners about that a lot too, because mm-hmm. you know, mental health is uh, one of those things that is now being more approached and more, you know. Um, addressed and which is is good being more, more acknowledged i mean look at van gogh he cut off his ear we don't really know why but you know i'm sure it had well, you want to win the island everybody knows that yeah oh yeah that's it <laughs> so but um yeah artists you know deal with their their sense of mental you know stability and, and, and imposter syndrome and anxiety if especially and artists are very twitchy, anxious people usually. Mm-hmm. So, and I, it's one of those things you, it's good to get onto groups and talk to other artists about it because you feel more normal. You yeah. know, you feel like, okay, I'm not the only one that's having all these, these thoughts swirling through my head and it makes you a better artist. So in terms of the things, so making a better artist, when you're doing art, I mean, I know Larry is, he's just amazing on his understanding and duplication of, of human form, of nature, how he can do just a leaf or a tree and what he does that translates into his dragons, which are just amazing, you mm-hmm. know, just works of art that he's creating that stuff. For you, what's like a, a real critical thing for an artist to to focus on? Because some people, you know, is it style? Is it technique? Is it just passion? Is it getting form? Like you've got like with writers, say, okay, a writer writes. You have got to keep on writing and writing and writing. And then you start 
you know, throw, be willing to throw away your first million words until you actually get a voice. What I, what I tell them to do when they're trying to figure out their voice is I don't tell them so much what to do. I tell them what not to do. Don't try to glom on to whatever's in fashion. Don't try to be like, oh, this, this art style is in fashion, so I'm going to do that. I do what drives you, what brings you joy, what you know you feel passionate about because people can see the passion in your art. And then when they see that you're excited about it, they get excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, art Nouveau wasn't in when I started in the 90s. That was that was not in. Uh, it was passe at that it, point. Yeah, it, it was long, not, long gone its curve. It was not in. It took me years and years and years of doing it and presenting it to um, book covers and things for them to finally be like, oh yeah, this is a, this is a, this is a good style. Let's bring this back. I mean, was it Celestial Seasons that opened it up? No, that was, that's more of a Chinese cloisonne style, honestly. Um, oh, what? I thought that was Art Nouveau. <laughs> no, it's not Art Nouveau. It's more Chinese cloisonne, <laughs> but good try. <laughs> um, uh, what brought it back into style? Um, I think the Bellagio one I did was one of the first ones that was like a mainstream Art Nouveau piece. It was all of a sudden around that time, that was 2002, four, uh, that I did that, that it was all of a sudden I was getting hired for mainstream Art Nouveau pieces. And that was after years of submitting stuff. Like I did a book cover with a unicorn on it and I submitted all these Art Nouveau sketches and they're like, oh, it's great, but take out this decorative border and make it more like, you know, painterly. I'm like, ugh. But um, after a while, finally, it it, it worked its way in. So back to what we were saying, just do what you're passionate about and do what inspires you and other people will, will see that inspiration. And that's, again, why I try to pick so many different, you know, things. If I see that passion in your work, even if it's not a style that, you know, that you normally relate to science fiction, mm-hmm. I see that passion and I know, all right, this guy, this, per- this person is passionate and they, you know, and um, they can, you know, this this will create like a really cool illustration and Maliva does a great job of pairing those because if, obviously if she paired them, the the the, the stories with, if she paired a story about um, that's very character driven with somebody like, you know, Bruce who does a lot of of backgrounds and and, and universes, it would be hard for him to do that. It's not in his wheelhouse. So she mm-hmm. does a very good job pairing them together so that the style works really well with the story and creates like a crazy good illustration. Right. Because uh, my job as the art director of all of these different students is to have them create their best piece so that they can win. The uh, they can win uh, try to win the grand prize. Yeah, so so just so you know, as you're listening to this thing, the way it works on this, what Echo was just talking about is anybody can submit their three pieces of art, and out of those, you got the three three people each quarter that will be selected as the winners for that quarter. Then the twelve winners for the year are assigned the winning stories from the writing contest, and that's what she's talking. About. Those are the pieces. That's the artwork that they're now doing that they will be judged on to be chosen and that's that's judged by all the the uh, judges right and well those 12 people they're um they come down here for the the workshop at the conference and as part of their their award but actually their award starts way earlier it starts when they get assigned their story because then they work with me as art director and that gives them a chance to learn how to work with an art director and how to take my feedback and um it's better that they screw it up with me than with a real client. So, I, you know, I, I actually work with them to show how the process works. Um, and I, 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 I've worked with all kinds of art directors. I've worked with great art directors and I've worked with not so great art directors. So I know the level of art direction that, you know, an artist can take, especially a young artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to 
encourage them to create a piece that they all they love. The last thing I want is for them to have a piece at the end and them saying, you know, well, I didn't win because, you know, I was forced to do a piece. I didn't, I don't really like it. You know, I want them to say, hey, this is the best piece I've ever created. So I'm, I tried it to, to encourage them to create the best piece I can mm-hmm. in their style and make their style strong enough. Um, and really, um, Make them show. So each of them has a fair shot at winning because I want all of them to win. So right. I want all of them to win yeah. grand prizes. So I don't. I don't know which one wins. I try to make each one grand prize worthy, and then uh, you know. But they sure. get they they get that expertise of working with a with an art director and having to make the deadline and everything. So yeah, and then they come out for this workshop that you teach them for the first couple of days, and then from there it goes. We have the other judges that will, will come out and the other uh, art professionals will come in. So we got Larry Elmore coming to teach them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, one of our winners from last year who I did a podcast with her. That was Max Caven. Mm-hmm. And just an amazing person for her having, you know, this whole idea of sometimes people feel entitled. And she is so not that, you know, people were complaining to her, can you believe I didn't even have 3D modeling option at my high school? And she's like, what? What are you talking about? We didn't have any electives. We didn't even have art in my school. You know? And- I, I didn't. In my high school, I had one art class, but I had a really good art teacher who kept giving me other assignments because he could tell I was, you know, really sat my parents down and mm-hmm. told them that, uh, hey, your daughter's really talented. And they're like, oh, yeah, of course she is. I'm like, no, 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 really. You got to send her to art school. But he only had one because they didn't have the funding for anything. Yeah. So, um, well, in Turkey, it's not so much no funding. It's like they're, they actually discourage yeah. anything other than the main line, what they want to do. So art is definitely not something that's encouraged. So she was doing it despite that. And she had teachers telling her, I hope you fail. Yep. You know? And so yeah. she's like real special because she's now at USC and she's leading the senior program in um, game and the game design stuff. That's so exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting and stuff. But her whole thing is she got her first um, iPad by she won contests and with the money she saved by winning the contest she was able to buy an iPad because otherwise she was using she'd always get in trouble for doodling in the books in class you know and she had an iPad to do so and her exactly. work is really cool yes. so but anyway so yeah so the winners are come able to see you know the other successful artists we've got Michael Talbot who was a, mm-hmm. a winner eight years ago who's doing amazingly successful work you know um with this, with this contest or with, with Illustrators of the Future, what's the value of having this contest there in the first place? From your perspective as an artist, an established artist, what's the value of an art competition, art contest, and specifically the Illustrators of the Future? Oh, well, the, the Illustrators of the Future was set up to help launch careers. So that... that- that's you know that's a, that's a very big value is that it's it's greatly supported by uh, by you guys and and all the winners are heavily promoted which is you know and it allows the the winners to really gain a sense of self confidence because they um you know they they're they're chosen they're, you know it's a lot of uh, a lot of competition and then um they um it helps them gain self-confidence and it helps them learn all the skills that took us 30 years to learn to, in order to, to promote themselves. Um, it helps them make all these connections and contacts. They meet all the other, you know, the other winners and keep in touch with each other. They meet former winners and we try to keep them in mind whenever I have jobs that come along that they're looking for somebody new. I'm like, Ooh, ooh I know, I bet I know somebody. And we try to like give, you know, send mm-hmm. jobs over to, to really get them launched professionally. 
Oh, there's just so many things for it. Yeah. And it doesn't cost anything to enter, which is really cool. Uh, so I mean, there's no reason not to enter. I mean, just yeah. enter every quarter because, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. I mean, worst case scenario, you win, you know, yay. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, no, I'm just curious because cool. you, you've been teaching the con- this uh, workshop for a while. Some people don't know how much uh, Owen Hubbard actually was an artist himself and really saw the value of the artist to the continuation of society and to a, a good future. Any particular aspect to his his career or his writings on art that for you really stands out? I I just love that he appreciated that. That he that he, you know, he had, you know, he really understood he's a writer, but he understood how important art is to communication and to, you know, that artists shape visually shape the uh, the the world and the future and you know i mean it's artists read all of these authors works and 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 visually create things that influence the world and it's our job to to you know do exactly that and then um the world sees these these visualizations and it become you know becomes it, it creates it creates the future i mean it mm-hmm. was first it was um i mean it was uh, i think it was it was uh, Oh, gosh, I'm going to get caught on this. It was either Pyle or Wyeth. Uh, it was Wyeth that first put parrots on uh, pirates' shoulders. They didn't really exist, you know, in patches and pirates and the whole look that it is right now. It was a. Uh, it was Wyeth, I think. Anyway, uh, that um that 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 did that, and now that's you know the, that's, 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 that's what that's they the are. Standard. You go into you go into uh, you know a spirit Halloween, and that's what the picture of the pirate looks like. But it took an artist to to say this is what pirates look like, and you know it takes an artist to create these worlds, and then people just accept that that's that's what it looks like. That's you know, and, and um, I mean I don't know how like even the VR goggles nowadays were were, were created and everything, but I, I know that like I said in in um, Johnny Mnemonic, he had those, but an artist might have, you know, created that and developed the look for it. And, and then when they go to develop the real thing later on down the line, it was imagined originally by an artist 20, 30, right. 40, 50 years ago. So, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. I still so- haven't seen, like, Heinlein's, like, he, he always in his books describes uh, the, the, like, saran wrap clothing on the women. And I'm just like, yeah, that, that's not going to work, dude. You know, I don't want to illustrate that. Yeah. So we always joke about that. So. But he did, he did come up with the... Uh, the fighter jet. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that was the uh, uniform that they, the 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 flight suit that yeah. they wore. That was, that and was then it his. was visualized yes. by artists and created. And so our, it, we work hand in hand. Our, yeah. The writers come up with things, artists visualize them, and then they come into existence in in real life. Yeah, and that's something that Kelly Fries talked about too, as the original coordinating judge. But because um, Ron Hubbard always he was one of the few writers of the day back in the '30s and '40s who would actually sit down and talk to the illustrators. A lot of the writers were, they were some other aloof or they were, were the writers. Right. You know, so you're going to do whatever illustration you do, but Hubbard wasn't like that at all. And so Kelly talked about that. And so did some of the other um, illustrators back then, uh, just how the illustration and the story create more than just the two by themselves. Absolutely, yeah. One of the things I, I talked to the illustrators about is working with writers because writers visualize things different than illustrators do. We're taught to illustrate, we're taught to visualize things in ways that communicate in a particular manner that get people, They want we want them to pick up the book or pick up the whatever you're selling. Um, so there's visual ways to communicate this story that engage people and get them excited to, to pick up the book. 
However, writers work differently. They describe things, yeah. and they might describe something that just sounds great, but it will not illustrate well. And they need illustrated writers need to understand that that illustrators see things differently and communicate differently. And illustrators need to understand that writers see things, and you know, and, and mm -hmm. if they work together cohesively, they create something just right. amazing. I mean, you know. Uh, so I, I was talking to them earlier about about how to communicate with writers. So and that writers need to also you know understand that uh, illustrators they 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 see things different and it, it's just yeah they don't work together. So yeah. and, and it sounds like uh, Hubbard and Freeze both you know really understood that. Yeah. So we have one of the big events that we have that's happening tomorrow is the big reveal, and that's where the illustrators line all their art up there and they're standing on the side of the room and then the writers come in and they have to pick their, their artwork. And as soon as they pick it, then the illustrators introduce themselves. And it's amazing. It's one of the most emotional events that happens all week long where the writer sees the visualization that an illustrator had of their story and they're just, they're amazed. Oh, the big reveal's fantastic. You know, we're, I told the illustrators, I'm like, we're hoping for some, like, crying, some, like, ugly crying, where they're just like, oh, my God, this is amazing, and they're just, like, tears. And, yes. You know, so, because it's just so cool to see the reactions. They're invariably they is. picture things differently than, you know, and, and to see it come to life in the illustration is uh, is really rewarding. And all the illustrators, just, they always do, like, such a good job. So, yeah. Um, and it's cool to see them just see it, and uh, yeah, it, it's, 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 one of the best events. That's great. So um, this has been a lot of fun talking about this stuff, and I really wanted to have this opportunity to newly get out to the aspiring artist that this is a contest that they should be entering and that it really levels the playing field because it's blind judging. So it's not a matter of who you know or who you're the daughter or son of or the husband or wife of. And it's not limited. I, I make sure I'm very much not limited to a style. So, you know, even if your style, you feel like, well, it's not, I'm not sure it fits. Enter. Just enter it, you know, because I'm trying to really diversify the look mm -hmm. of, of cause, because we're creating the future. And in order to create the future, there has to be a variety of, of, of directions out there to really, you know, to, to create. So, yeah, but, um, so don't enter, enter the contest, even, you know, enter it and enter it every quarter. Cause just because you don't get in doesn't mean that you, uh, you know, your work isn't any good. It just means that, you know, there, I, I have to pick eight, you know, there might be more entries one quarter than another and, mm -hmm. you know, enter, 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 just good. keep entering. So. Good. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. The Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else on Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Ellen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Echo. Thank you. Thank you.